These stories were told on the water cooler stage at the Basement Theatre in Auckland as part of the Auckland Fringe Festival. This month, our four storytellers explored the theme On the Fringe, which led them to their own experiences on the fringe of society, as well as subjects which could be considered outside the norm of polite discussion. Please note that these stories were recorded live and the language and themes might not be for everyone. I'd like to bring up the first storyteller for the night, if that's all right. Can I uh, introduce, can we have a little round of applause for Annie Duckworth? So I was living in New York working on feature films and the first feature film that I worked on was one called Affluenza. It wasn't very good, don't seek it out. Um, And I was working in the bottom rung that you can possibly be, which is a production assistant, there were ten of us. And as I was from New Zealand, I was kind of everyone's favourite pet. They all have kind of foreigner lust over there, they thought I was really adorable. Um, so everyone wanted to be my friend, particularly uh, the focus puller on th- on the set, who is the highest rank in the camera department underneath the cinematographer. Um, so we uh, had quite a nice friendship, which blossomed into some sneaky pashes, that kind of thing. Um, and on the ride to and from set, we you know really got to know each other. Ended up going home together one night. It was all great and lovely. Um, And then I discovered on set that the uh, second AC, which is the person under the focus puller in the hierarchy, uh, was actually a woman scorned by the same man. Uh, And she really enjoyed telling me that he actually had a girlfriend um, and that I was very naughty. Um, So when I had a chance, I went and talked to him and said, hey, so, girlfriend, huh? How, how about that? Um, and he informed me that he, yes, did have a girlfriend. He meant to mention it earlier. Um, <laughs> but that he was in a non-exclusive relationship, which um, is actually a thing in America that they do. We don't do that really here in New Zealand, but they do do that in America. So I, I took him at his word, continued suit, um, and, and that, was, that was nice. And then we finished the production, came to the end, and it was the night of the rap party, and we were in a lovely bar in Manhattan, open bar, drinks were flowing, everyone was dressed up, it was a great time to get pissed, and uh, I chose to get, like, New Zealand pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nobody else really got that pissed, just me. Um, (laughs) And... So there were taxis and whiskey and taxis. We ended up in a bar in Brooklyn and somewhere along the way I lost everything. My bag, my passport, my credit card, my metro subway card, keys, cell phone, everything. Um, And so I went up to old mate Focus Puller and was like, hey, so I've lost all my stuff. Going to have to come to your place tonight. Um, That's the way it's going to be. And he... (laughs) regrettably informed me that his girlfriend was currently asleep in his bed, uh, so that wouldn't work out. Um, But as the night wore on, I kind of, you know, came up with a plan, I'll sleep on the couch, we're just mates, like, doesn't have to be a thing. And he was kind of like, no, I I don't know. And uh, (laughs) more whiskeys, you know, later on in the night, he starts getting a bit lusty, a bit grabby, and he's like you know, I'm I'm warming up to this idea of you coming back to my place. (laughs) Um, Actually, 
you know, maybe you don't have to sleep on the couch. <laughs> maybe you could, uh, you could come in the bed with me and my girlfriend. We've done that kind of thing before. Uh, and I assured him that his girlfriend did not want to be jumped on by two whiskey-soaked cretins at 5am, <laughs> one of which she had never met before. Um, so I managed to convince him that I'd just sleep on the couch and, and that would be that. So we got the taxi back to his place, very amorous, very lovely. And he has one of these apartments, which is common in New York, which is called a railroad apartment, where you have to walk through all the rooms to get to the other room. So to get to the living room where the couch is, I have to walk through the bedroom where his girlfriend is sleeping. Um, so we very drunkenly tiptoe through, you know, whisper yelling the, the way that you do. Um, and he puts me on the couch and gives me a blanket and a pillow and we continue to make out and I, you know, I tell him to go to bed with his girlfriend. And he does and, that, and that's great and everything's going well. Um, and I'd love to end the story there, <laughs> but unfortunately, that is not where it ended. Um, in the middle of the night, having drunk a lot of alcohol, I had the urge to go to the bathroom. Um, so I got up, and it's dark, I can't see, I'm stumbling around, um, and I, I make my way into the bedroom, and I'm trying to find the door, and the urge is rising, it's getting quite strong. And uh, um, there's a wardrobe and a shelf and no door. <laughs> um, and the urge becomes so much, I know that it's, I'm not going to make it. And I'm faced with a tough decision. <laughs> so with him and his girlfriend asleep in the bed, I decide to squat in the corner of the room and relieve myself. So, yep, I'm, I'm pissing on the floor in his bedroom. Um, so that happened. And then went back to the couch, went back to bed. That was that. <laughs> in the morning, I wake up, I'm feeling like a sack of shit, <laughs> but there's no one around. So I manage to sneak out with no one there, and you think, you might think that that would be a deal breaker, you know, after that, it's probably not going to want to see me anymore, but no. <laughs> We continued a romance for many months. And uh, he still drunk Facebook messages me to this very day. <laughs> right, our next storyteller is Sarade Cameron. Would you like to come over, Sarade? There's a whole lot of shit that I think about all the time, but I find really hard to talk about um, to kind of most people. And I think that's because talking to them about it would make them really uncomfortable and me really uncomfortable. And it would probably lead to them making assumptions about me that I'd really rather they didn't. But, um, you know, I was thinking about the theme for tonight and it seemed like a pretty good expression of the theme. 
if the subject matter and like the act of what I was talking about was kind of on the fringe or not usually discussed. So that's why I picked what I picked. Um, but I have a real problem with the way that most people talk about sex because, I like, especially to young girls, um, I think that we need to be like clearer in the way we discuss sex with people who haven't done it yet because you need to like kind of talk to girls about uh, what their expectations should be and what they kind of need to do or like how much of themselves they're going to give away when they sleep with someone or how much they might kind of learn about themselves through doing it. Um, and if we're not clear, I think that we risk creating this massive separation between like expectation and reality. Uh, and although conversations of this nature uh, might seem really shocking and confronting, they're not as shocking or confronting as receiving really, really bad head. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I used to go out with this guy uh, a few years ago in different cities, so I'm like pretty sure he's not here tonight. Um, and he was really cool, he was funny, uh, he was kind of like a dweeb, but he was also really sexy, and um, he thought I was really funny, which I am. And we were really happy together for a while, which was cool. And he was older than me. And as I said, I was really young. I was like really inexperienced. And as a result of that, I listened to basically everything he told me to do. And most of the things he told me to do were just suggestions. So um, like he suggested that I move the furniture in my room around to create more space. Um, he, he suggested that I not buy a car, which started up like a lawnmower. Um, he suggested that I call my mum more. And then one day, he suggested that I get a Brazilian. And I was like, yeah, cool. Um, I was already getting what they call a high bikini wax, so I figured like a little bit more wouldn't be too different. Um, but it's only when you try and get rid of every single tiny hair on your minge that you realise like just how many there are. <laughs> And the waxing specialist had me in like multiple positions, like one leg up, other leg up, like just full frontal, <laughs> holding my butt cheeks, everything. And, um, and then when it was done, after like a long time, <laughs> I like rolled back to his place and kind of showed him the results. And he was like, I think I liked it better before. <laughs> <laughs> And I got over there, and that was sweet. Um, and then, a little while later, he um, suggested that I start washing myself down there. And as weird as it may sound to anyone that doesn't own one, um, vaginas actually clean themselves. Like, if, you're, if you don't have an STI or whatever, if you're, like, healthy, then your clunge is, like, just going to take care of yourself. And she's, she's totally cool with doing that. Um, and it was really surprising that he asked me to wash down there in the first place because he very rarely got close enough to know what was going on. Like, um, and, and I did, you know, I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, oh, yeah, sure. So I went and I got like a whole lot of like femme washes. There's something called Vagisil, which is fucking awful. And I realized really quickly that I was allergic to all of them, but I kept using them because I was like, it's fine. You know, like I'm obviously, there's something wrong with me. I'm dirty, like I'm doing this for him. Um, so when, you know, he did ever kind of get close enough, um, it was kind of, 
a bit like, if I took my pants off, he would sort of squint and like try kind of not to look like directly at him. <laughs> and like pretend like no matter what was happening and kind of pretend really hard that he wasn't uncomfortable with like the proximity. Um, and he actually told me one time, uh, I'm straight, you know, like obviously, um, which is the first kind of, yeah, heteronormativity kind of. Anyway, so he was like, yeah, I'm straight, obviously, but you know, I'm just not one of those guys who like loves vaginas. <laughs> um, so, another thing I really dreaded about our relationship um, was anything involving fingering because um, he, I tried to explain to him, you know, a couple of times that like, like your fingers should be like a sensitive, like really energetic tool and not like a blind kind of like drunk limp worm or something. <laughs> Um, but every time I tried to explain that to him, he would just become like, he'd like just crumple and become even less likely to listen to anything that I was trying to tell him. And in fact, when he did ever do it, I just like, I'd agonise over how long it had been since he'd last done it and how likely it would be that he would try and do it again. Um, I'll do a reenactment for you. So like, not like a real reenactment, but like, so I'm him, this, this is my vagina. Um, so... Okay, I'm him. <laughs> Did you come? Did you? Did you come? Um. So that was that was quite difficult. But um, the real crux of the problem was. Like the head, obviously, um, or if I don't know, rug munching, gnawing the floorboards, tongue exploration, like muff diving, um, whatever, whatever you want to kind of go for. And keep in mind that we'd been together for quite a while at this stage, and um, I had had laser hair removal, which lasts a lifetime for this. <laughs> and um, <laughs> him, and um, <laughs> and. And I had also, like, become, like, so as I said, it was really inexperienced when we got together, you know, I didn't know anything. Um, but I had, like, tried really, really hard to make kind of things good for him, you know, so I'd, like, read books, I looked at diagrams, I kind of talked to people, I, like, and most importantly, you know, asked him questions and listened to his response. So I was like a blowjob ninja at this stage. And yet, <laughs> when he, you know, whenever kind of, I forgot how bad it had been the last time and kind of, like, let him do it again when I just, like, gave myself up to his oral assault. Um, it was just, like, every bad feeling in the whole world rolled into one. Like, we were both there just pretending we really enjoyed it. And he was kind of, like, limply moving his tongue around, like, trying to steal himself, like, for, you know, trying to pretend that he was anywhere else. And, and I was pretending that I really enjoyed it too until, like, he would just kind of, like, just get going in one little spot miles away from anything that mattered. <laughs> and um, until, like, it just became way too painful and obviously I faked it, like, badly. I faked it really badly because I just wanted him to be like, oh, are you sure? I'd be like, no! Um, but, but that never happened. Um, and I feel really sorry for both of us looking back on it. I especially feel sorry for um, the one time when he tried to tell me through a mouthful of my labia that um, <laughs> he, that, that I tasted so good and it was like the clearest 
saddest, most obvious lie I've ever heard. And um, that was the last time we ever had sex. So since then, um, you know, we broke up quite a long time ago and things for me and for her have gotten much better. Um, I've gone from thinking that my vagina was like this dirty, offensive thing that I needed to be ashamed of to realizing that I was just with a guy who didn't like vaginas. Um, and I've been fortunate enough also to come across a couple of experts who have shown me that oral sex is totally awesome. Um, one guy in particular who just went at it with like a grim determination, like, you're gonna come, I'm gonna make you come, like, we're not leaving here until you do. <laughs> that was great. And, um, and another guy who I'm quite into at the moment, actually, who gets this, like, kind of dreamy look of happiness in his eyes when the subject is brought up. Like, it's his favorite thing, and that is a great coincidence. Um, and I really sort of wish I'd known, you know, wish little Sarade had known that her vagina was something to be, like, celebrated and kind of, I don't know, just enjoyed. Not something that I needed to, like, scrub and wax and fucking attack. Um, <laughs> But, of course, I didn't know that because no one ever talked to me about oral sex or what I should expect or what I could say to someone. Because the only sex education I really got before I had it was, like, my friend Nicole telling me about how she got fingered in a cinema. And, um, and, and, um, like, sex education videos when I was 11 of, like, 14-year-old boys talking about how like, when they get erections in class, they just tuck it up under their belt. <laughs> um, which, like, I didn't even know what an erection was at that stage, and I was just like, um, that was amazing. Um, so it took, you know, a bit of kind of fucking it up and fucking to show me that I didn't need to have a vagina like a Barbie doll <laughs> to, you know, make it worth it. Um, and I'm really glad that I've shared my experiences of oral sex with a room full of strangers um, because I hope that I've opened up the floor to more di like frank discussion about this because just like great sex, oral is only the beginning. <laughs> so. Thank you, Saray. Our next speaker. Gaia 3, would you like to come over here? Gaia 3 Naya, please. Ladies and gentlemen. I am my parents' oldest child, and I guess they really, really wanted the best for me in life. So um, upon my birth, they consulted a numerologist, and this numerologist told them that I needed, uh, you know, to achieve my maximum potential in life, I needed a good name, and that name had to start with the letter G, and it had to be nine letters long. Like, nine letters, that's a lot. So, um, you know, this severely limited their options, um, even amongst Indian names, which are, you know, often quite long. Um, so what they decided to do was to give me a name that began with a G and was traditionally spelt with seven or eight letters and insert an extra A into it so that it would be confusing not only to all other ethnic groups but <laughs> other Indians as well. <laughs> yeah, so that was good. Um, <laughs> my family came to New Zealand in 1987, 88, so just after immigration law reform happened and 
um, non-white immigrants were uh, actively encouraged to come to New Zealand for really the first time since the post-gold rush era. Uh, so what that meant was that I spent a lot of time being the only Indian kid in daycare and kindy and primary school, and I became very familiar with the awkward pause um, when you are sitting in class and a teacher kind of is reading the role and then all of a sudden just stops <laughs> and kind of looks frightened and stutters a bit on that first syllable and hoping desperately that either you or some other child will help them out. Um, yeah, so I learnt early on to kind of preempt that and so as soon as I knew that the G's were kind of coming up and that the stop was going to happen, I would just jump in and say my name because otherwise I would have to deal with a lot of mispronunciations, often that involved gay trees, um, <laughs> which was not so great in primary school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I think I was around 11 when I really, like, felt this crushing sense of defeat around my name, like it really felt like a burden to me. And so I decided, like, the second I turned 18, I was going to change, have my name changed by deed poll. And the name that I picked for myself was Sarah, because I knew five Sarahs at the time. And I think it was, like, a safety in numbers sort of thing. <laughs> like, you know, it was a nice, safe name. Like, there are lots of them around. No one will care. Like, it will be great. Um, yeah, I eventually changed my mind. My name is not Sarah. It is still Guy 3 I'm happy to say. Um, yeah, so... Over time, I guess, I, you know, I, during that period of my life, I kind of just let people call me whatever they wanted because it was just easier than having to put up with things. Um, so I acquired quite a long cohort of nicknames that included G3, G-Unit, Guppy, um, Garfield. I don't know. Someone actually thought my name was Garfield one time. Um, and Guy Fry and many others. Eventually, most of these just became shortened to G because why use two syllables when you can use just one? Uh, yeah, so I've been called a lot of things over the years and it kind of sucks to have to apologise for your name all the time. Like, it, it starts to feel like you're apologising for who you are. Um, so I don't do that anymore. I make people say my actual name. <laughs> um, yeah, like just the other day I went to a birthday party, a friend's birthday party, and there was someone I'd never met there before. And I, she, I introduced myself to her and I was like, hey, my name's Gayathri, and she was like, what? <laughs> and I said, my name is Gayathri. <laughs> and she just looked at me and said, is there anything shorter that I can call you? And I said, not really. Um, yeah. And that was like, fuck yeah. I'm so glad that I did that. <laughs> like, I'm done apologizing for my name. Um, yeah, it was awesome. I haven't done that very often. And it felt really good not to just you know, let someone call me something stupid for no real reason. Yeah, um, I think, like, it's something that lots of migrant kids are familiar with, that experience of, you know, the awkward pause on the roll and stuff like that. I don't think my story is unique or anything, but there's just something about that abject horror that people greet you with when you're doing the very simple act of introducing yourself that is a little bit disconcerting. So, yeah... Um, and it's the, it's the little things that mark us, I guess. Um, when I was travelling through India, um, lots of people asked me, the first question they would ask me was, are you Indian? 
and like to the point where people would be riding around on motorbikes passing me in the street and they would scream at me as they went past, are you Indian? <laughs> and I would be standing there thinking, well, do you have a couple of hours to, you know, talk about the nature of identity and what it means to be Indian? Um, obviously not because they've already gone past me on their motorcycle. But um, yeah, so... When I was traveling around, I was like, oh, well, I can't tell people that I'm from New Zealand because no one would believe me, um, which is really annoying. And I didn't want to say that I was Indian because with that comes a lot of expectations. So um, I don't speak Hindi. It's not a part of my culture and stuff. But if I tell people I'm Indian when I'm in India, they expect that from me and then get annoyed when I don't. Um, and they're like, oh, you're forgetting your culture. Well, it's not actually my culture. And again, way more time than I, than I want to spend on things with strangers, you know. Um, so I would just settle on telling people, oh, I'm from Malaysia, which is true. I was born in Malaysia. And they would be like, oh, but you look Indian. And I would say, yes, I get that all the time. <laughs> and, and that would appease everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I remember the very first time that I felt like an outsider. Um, and that was when I was three years old. And that was, um, I went to daycare um, next door to my family's house. And um, at lunchtime, they would make this food, and it was, I think, just boiled carrots that had been mashed up. And I would look at them, and it was so different from the food that I ate at home. Um, it was, like, really bland. There was no spice. Um, I'm used to quite textural food, and so that mushy texture really made me gag. I didn't like it. Um, and everyone else would be eating it and enjoying it, and I was like is my mouth broken? Like, what is wrong with me that I don't enjoy this thing that everyone else around me, you know, really seems to be enjoying and it's fun? Um, yeah, and I don't think that feeling of being an outsider has ever left me since then. Um, and I think that's something, like, that's the gift and the curse of being a migrant kid. Um, you're always on the outside because, and you're, especially if you look like me or, you know, um, it's quite visible that you're an outsider. Or if you have a name like mine, you know, that marks you as an outsider before people even meet you or know anything about you. And so, um, yeah, the gift of that is, you know, it helps you build things like empathy and compassion. You understand things better. Um, but the curse of it is you never have that comfort and safety that comes with being an insider, I think. Like, there's nowhere that you can experience that because... Like, in your country of origin, you're still an outsider because the country that you live in takes you into itself. It subsumes you. It changes you. And people see that when you go back to the country that you came from. Um, it marks you. And so you never, ever have that safety of being just somewhere where you know distinctly that you fit and that you're safe and that you belong. Yeah, so I think... You know, I don't know if I identify as being Malaysian anymore or being Indian anymore. What I really identify as is being a migrant, and specifically a migrant to New Zealand. And I think perhaps that that's a culture all in and of itself. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Angela Dravid. It's 2009, I am divorced, a convicted criminal, an illegal immigrant, and I'm 22. When I was 17, I would frequent chat rooms a lot. 
I started chatting to this guy from the UK. He was 46. We would spend hours talking every day. And I f we both felt a strong kind of connection. Together we planned my itinerary to meet each other. On 22nd of December 2003, I met him. I had told my dad that I was going to live with mum in New Zealand. And when I visited mum, I told her I was going back to live with dad in Australia. I banked on them both avoiding contact with each other, but they'd realised I'd run away three days later. My relationship with this man started the same as any other couple. I loved him. He was kind, thoughtful and sincere. When he proposed, I was happy. And when we were married, I started to sink into a depression. I felt miserable. I hated waking up next to a man who was so much older than me. His friends had children who were my age. And when we were in public, I began to isolate myself and sit at home. In 2004, I was arrested for domestic violence against my ex-husband. He called the police and I wasn't remorseful. I was taken into police custody. At court, I was told I would be in prison on remand. I was there for two months. Prison was an exciting time for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually stopped taking antidepressants. And I made a lot of friends and started teaching English and math to deportees, foreign nationals, and illiterate women. It was here that I started to appreciate the importance of education. Many women I spoke with were simply in the system because prison offered them a lifestyle that they couldn't afford outside. In the remand ward, there seemed to be an abundance of women convicted for petty crime. I also learned how to mop. <laughs> I was told by a prison guard that I was granted bail to an approved premises, and I was very lucky to be accepted to this because my visa stipulated that I had no access to pub public funds. Um, this hostel is where I would spend over three years of my life, from the age 19 to 22. The hostel is what I can only describe as a slightly more dysfunctional flat with all women. Some women were on bail and some were sentenced there. I was on bail for a year and sentenced to reside at the hostel for two years. There were some crazy things that happened in the hostel. We had a serial shitter. <laughs> who would poop in the sanitary bin every morning. There was a girl whose ex came onto the premises wielding a knife. I was the resident that encountered this person and I ran inside shouting, oh my God, there's a man here. <laughs> the manager thought I was excited. <laughs> a key worker told us that Kate Moss was expected to do a community order. It took me five hours to realize it was an April Fool's joke. But it wasn't all fun. I missed my family. 
I missed my family in New Zealand. A few days before I was sentenced, I was called into the office to take a phone call. It was my mum. I broke down and cried, telling her everything. I think everyone in the office stopped working and looked at me silently. Mum had been contacted by my ex-husband, who told her everything that had happened to me. That day I learned how beautiful a parent's unconditional love is. She also told me Dad had disowned me. <laughs> but at that moment I didn't care. I wasn't alone in holding a secret. My residency at the hostel was coming to an end and I'd taken up working with permission from the home office. I moved into a flat with another resident, someone I thought was mature and trustworthy. And we seemed to live together quite happily. But then one day the locks were changed and I wasn't able to contact her. I lived in a hotel for a few days until I finally told my probation officer the situation. She arranged for me to go back to the hostel. I learned a valuable, oh, sorry, I felt like I was being sentenced again. I learned a valuable lesson that time. People are not always who you think they are. At the hostel, I finally had contact with my ex-husband. He asked to meet me and I was excited. I thought we were going to get back together. We went to a restaurant and later for a walk. He was giving me his goodbye spiel. I pleaded for him to take me back. He said he'd think about it. He kissed me and walked away. I was served divorce papers later that week. The divorce seemed to make my immigration status a worry. I left it for three months before contacting the New Zealand consulate. The woman referred me to a Kiwi barrister, and when I told him my whole story, he took pity on me and did my case pro bono. It was a long and lengthy divorce, and I was taken to asylum and immigration tribunal to appeal my deportation notice. After a year of fighting the Home Office and my ex-husband, I retreated and contacted my dad. I hadn't talked to dad for several years now, and it bothered me that he disowned me. But when I spoke with him, he had changed. He was mellow and happy. I told him I needed a flight home and I didn't have the money. Within 24 hours, Dad sold his car and bought me a ticket home. My relationship with my parents became stronger. My brother, who was only 10, was now a 17-year-old. My parents seemed a lot older and frail, and my cousins had grown. It took me about two years to get to terms with how much, older every, how much older everybody seemed to be. I eventually settled and life seemed to get on track. Six years after my divorce, my ex-husband messaged me to apologize. It was cathartic for both of us. We had a brief chat and it was civil, but I don't think you'll ever know how much my life changed from that point in 2004. We both couldn't be in each other's lives. Too much had happened, and we were like bad reminders of something from a past life. So that's how it came to be 2009, and I came to realize a few things. That every experience is a lesson, that the present is not your end point, but it's simply the start of something new. I can't judge people based on their past, maybe by their intention. 
that sometimes the best friendships come from mistakes. But for me, most personally, for me, it's definitely that human compassion is the single greatest motivator to continue living. Thanks. The Water Cooler would like to thank The Basement, producer Sarah Finnegan-Walsh and New Zealand On Air for making this happen. I'm your host Joseph Harper and this has been The Water Cooler. See you next time.